was in Afghanistan in uh, January, and we'll talk about that in a moment here. I was sharing with the first service, I remember the first time I came to Calvary, Miami, uh, your pastor uh, gave me three Cuban coffees, and uh, I didn't sleep for 36 hours, you know. Uh, it'd probably been easier on me had he given me crack, you know. Uh, so, so uh, first time I experienced uh, Christian persecution in the church, you know. <clears throat> you know, guys, uh, uh, it's been a tremendous uh, time of change in our ministry in the last few years. Uh, we actually literally doubled in size in one year. We're actually operating in 37 countries around the world, uh, but God has us uh, really all over the world. One of the people that I respect the most in the Bible is the prophet Jeremiah, guys. And there's a lot of reasons why I respect this man. Uh, when Jeremiah was called to be a prophet, one, he's a boy. And God calls him and he says, but I'm a child. And he says, do not say you're a child, but go and do what I tell you to do. And Jeremiah had a very difficult life, guys. We know that he served between 40 to 50 years. And uh, he was very unique among prophets of the Lord. He was not only a prophet of the Lord, but he was a priest of the Lord. And what was unique about that, there were only three prophets in the Old Testament that were priests. It was Jeremiah, Zechariah, and Ezekiel. And the job of the priest was to bring people into close fellowship with their God. But for 40, 50 years, he was very faithful to this and yet he never saw a revival in his time. And he went through a tremendous time of hardship and persecution. Uh, and guys, yet he, he weathered the storm. And one of the things that we see in Jeremiah's life, that while he went through such hard times, he never ever uh, saw victory as we would see it as victory today. I think about how we view success in ministry. And if you look at Jeremiah's life from the way that we view it today, most people would say that he had failed. But see, the thing is, is Jeremiah would not live to see his success. It would come long after his death. And yet, guys, when we read in the Word of God in Jeremiah chapter 13, or excuse me, Jeremiah chapter 14, no, it's not 15, he says, I understand, O Lord, remember me and care for me. Avenge me, O my persecutors. You are long-suffering, do not take me away. Think of how I suffer reproach for your sake. When your words came, I ate them. They were, joy, were my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. I never sat in the company of revelers, never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was on me. And guys, this is an amazing life to read about because what Jeremiah is saying is that his whole life was given to uh, seeking the Lord. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23, it does not read well in the King James Version, but it reads very well in the New International Version. And Jeremiah said, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his footsteps. And what Jeremiah realized, guys, is that his life did not belong to him. And he went through times of tremendous persecution. And one of the things about this, guys, God was never really gentle with Jeremiah in dealing with him. There was a time in his life he went through great discouragement. And you think that, I think he's looking for God to comfort him and bring peace to him. But what God says to Jeremiah in chapter 12, he says, Jeremiah, if the foot soldiers have wearied you, how will you handle mounted horsemen? And the image that he's given Jeremiah, I think many of you have probably seen the movie Braveheart. And when the Scotsmen first go out to fight the English army, they have a lot of bravado. They're ready for a battle there. And they're out there on the field, they want to fight, they, but most of them have farm tools. They don't even have real weapons. But then all of a sudden, the English army comes up over the rising. All of the men in uniform, all of them with chainmail, armor, battle shields, battle axes, swords, spears. And all of a sudden, there's a huge hush that comes over the Scotsmen. They realize they are into it at this point. And a fear comes over the army. Many of them want to run at that point. But then comes the heavy cavalry. And when the heavy cavalry comes, these are massive horses with massive men on top of them. The horses are covered in armor. The men are covered in armor. And the horses begin to walk. They begin to trot. And then they begin to gallop. And then they're in a full-on charge. And all of a sudden, these spears come down at you. And it must have been a very terrifying thing for people to see. And see, this is what God is saying to Jeremiah. He says, Jeremiah, if the foot soldiers have wearied you, how are you going to handle mounted horsemen? The foot soldiers are just the beginning of the battle, but I have much heavier fighting for you to do. And see, folks, Jeremiah doesn't have the privilege of seeing the movie Braveheart. He does not know how the movie ends with the uh, Scotsman. So this is a ter very terrifying image to him. You know, guys, when God calls us into ministry, often we look at ministry in and of our own ability and what we have the ability to do, our natural skills. But often God wants to use us in great ways, and he doesn't want you to rely on your own personal intelligence, skills, or tradecraft. He wants you to trust him to do a great work. 
Uh, when Afghanistan collapsed overnight, we had a tremendous problem in our ministry. Uh, we have a division of our ministry, we call it Ghost Operations. It's the invisible hand and the closed world of radical Islam. We are in nine of the 10 most dangerous Islamic countries in the world, and we have over 400 people in the underground in places like Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, many other places like that. And uh, they're doing ministry in the underground in these parts of the world. And uh, when it collapsed, I got a call from our Dutch office and, and we had 22 missionaries in the underground and pastors. They said, Wes, with their extended families, there are over 200 people that are all expecting to be killed for their faith. And guys, we had one missionary that was discipling three Islamic families. They had led them to Christ. They went into hiding because they knew that they would be coming after them. They did not know think to think about what would happen to these families. Well, the Taliban found the three families. They killed the mother, the father, the children, even the babies. They absolutely wiped out the families. So I went down to my staff and I said, guys, we're going into wartime operations. About a week later, five former Navy SEALs would fly in, three uh, former Marine Corps Special Forces, one Army Green Beret, and one brother from the CIA. And we planned our operations into Afghanistan. Shortly after that, we would send in two teams simultaneously. The first team would fly in in a chopper and land at 12,000 feet, would deploy one Marine and one SEAL. I went in with the second team. We had two SEALs and two Marines. The two SEALs went off in one direction. Me and the other Marine went off in another direction. We were told that we were gonna be climbing two to 4,000 feet, but we had to go 11,500 feet to get to the place that we needed to go. There were literally no trails on this mountain almost none at all. I asked the guys what the name of the mountains were. They said, there are too many of them. We do not know the names of these mountains. And as you're going up it, uh, the only, maybe 5% of it, there was some semblance of a trail because they have a rare mountain goat called an Ibex. And uh, basically wealthy people uh, go to parts of the world to hunt these things. And so you have a little bit of an Ibex trail and it's basically about six inches. And then you got gravel and shell and sand that slides into it. And if you miss a step, you fall a thousand feet and you die. I was actually uh, coming down the side of one mountain, I began to hear sliding and I didn't have time to think about it. I literally just reached back and I grabbed and I caught our interpreter as he was going off the side of the mountain. And uh, that one grab was able to save him. And uh, it was one of the most difficult climbs I've ever had in my life. Matter of fact, all the SEALs told me it was the most difficult climb they had all experienced. Everyone on the team, except for myself, had had multiple tours in Afghanistan and they'd been all over the mountains. And when we're getting up there, guys, what we are looking for is what's called a rat line. A rat line is an escape route of how to get people out of a country. We knew the other side of the mountains, but we had to find this part through Afghanistan to figure out how to people get people out of there. But one of the things is God began to do miracles. And guys, like I said, it was a tough place. I know that when I got off the mountain, uh, all of my toenails were black because of the blood that was under them, which was most of the rest of the team there. I actually lost two toenails through the climb. Fortunately, they're growing back. Sometimes they don't grow back. Uh, we had one brother by the name of Rodney. Rodney was with the elite SEAL Team 6. He spent 22 years with the SEALs, 12 years with SEAL Team 6, and then 13 years with the CIA. And he actually lost three toenails on that mountain, so that's how difficult it was. Uh, th then we begin to see God perform miracles. We got a call from YWAM, Youth with a Mission, and they said our country director is in a certain city. The Taliban knows he's there. They wrote a letter before the collapse and they said, we're gonna butcher you. We're gonna slaughter you. It was a very graphic letter. You are a traitor to Islam. There will be absolutely no forgiveness. When they called me, they said, Wes, they're within two hours of finding this guy. I said, guys, two hours is not a lot of time. I don't know that we can save this guy. You should have called us a long time ago. But fortunately, we were able to get a hold of one of our assets in the country. An hour later, our guy showed up at the door. We picked the kid up. We got him out of there. An hour later, Taliban was there. Had we not got a hold of him, they would have killed this kid. Then we got a call from Heather Mercer. Many of you might remember Heather Mercer. Very famous missionary. She was imprisoned in Afghanistan by the Taliban for preaching the gospel. And uh, when the U.S. forces invaded in 2001, she was released at that time. Heather Mercer called and said that she had 28 people in there, all believers, and asked if we could help. We sent an operational team, we got those 28 out also. But the one that surprised me the most is we got a call from Shannon Spam. Shannon Spann's husband, Mike Spann, was the first CIA officer killed in Afghanistan back in 2001. When the U.S. invaded, uh, Mike had been in the Marine Corps, he was in Special Forces, he was recruited by the CIA, Shannon was also recruited by the CIA. They met at the farm, which is a training base. They fell in love and they got married. 
when they, Afghanistan, what were, U.S. forces were going in, they were part of the alpha team or the beginning team. And uh, Shannon said that when Afghanistan began to collapse because of her connections within the counterintelligence world, she was able to get a lot of people out of Afghanistan. But when the last aircraft left, she said, Wes, I could not get anybody out of Afghanistan. And one night she was walking around and she was praying and she said, Lord, I don't know what to do. And the Lord spoke to her heart and he said, Shannon, why are you going to the world? Why are you not going to my people? She goes, well, I don't know your people, Lord. He gave her a name and she called this gentleman and he said, Shannon, call Far Reaching Ministries. Now guys, I honestly do not know who this man is. And she called and I was out of the country. She spoke to Brent, Brent's on my staff. Brent was in Second Force Recon in the Marine Corps. It's the lead of the Marine Corps Special Forces. And uh, she said, Brent, I've got uh, 26 people in country. They are not believers, but they all help our government. If we do not get them out, they will be murdered. Will you guys help us? So Brent called me up and says, brother, what do you want to do? I said, let's green light the operation. We green lighted the operation. We sent in a team. We got those out too. Then we got a call. Uh, the first female Supreme Court justice was in the city. The Taliban knew she was there. They were hunting her. One of the things they want to do is make examples out of people. So when they capture them, the first thing they do before they kill a woman is they gang rape her. And the reason they do this, they say it keeps them from entering into paradise. Guys, it's absolute nonsense. It's just an excuse to be a displaced, disgusting human being and rape a woman. And we were able to send an operational team and also get them out of there. Uh, during this time, I got a call from a guy within the intelligence network, guys, and I'm not going to name the agency he's with. He's still an active agent in our government. And he called me up and he said, can I meet with you? I said, sure, of course. And so he, I was surprised because he got on an airplane and literally flew to California that day to come to our U.S. office. And he came in and he said, Wes, you do not know this, but the entire intelligence world is talking about you and your ministry. And I said, guys, I, I said, why in the world would the entire intelligence world be talking about us? I mean, how is that even possible? He goes, listen, he goes, we're U.S. intelligence and we can't get anybody out of Afghanistan. You're a Christian organization and you're getting everybody out. He goes, what are you doing? Well, guys, I took the next 45 minutes and I sat down and I opened up the Word of God and I went through the Word of God with him and explained what it meant to be a believer in Jesus Christ. I said, you know, guys, I said, we have men, and guys, we have a very unique ministry. I have one brother that spent 13 years Marine Corps Special Forces, uh, 22 years with the FBI, works in counterterrorism, uh, spoke fluent Arabic in seven dialects, tested at genius level, also five other languages he has a good grasp on. We have two former CIA agents working with us, one current, and uh, we have uh, uh, a lot of SEALs and a lot of Marines, a lot of Special Forces that are helping us, so God's given us a very unique theme. And uh, when Shannon flew out to speak with me, guys, uh, she flew out to California to speak with me, and uh, she was explaining to me that she called this brother and she said, why? She goes, who is Far Reaching Ministries? Who is Wes Bentley? Who is Brent? And guys, I don't know who he is. He said, Shannon, he goes, if my family were in Afghanistan, these are the two men I would want to go and get them. And guys, she's become a central part of our ministry. One of the great things about it, we knew the military side of things, and we had a grasp of the intelligence side of it, but not to the level that Shannon has had. And she's become a very intricate part of our ministry. Now we had a tremendous problem, guys. We had over 910 people in safe locations inside of Afghanistan. On March 4th, we were scheduled to take four, three aircraft when 910 people were supposed to leave Afghanistan and fly to a, a NATO country. Unfortunately, when Russia invaded the Ukraine, from what we have been told, Russia had an agreement with Afghanistan that no plane could leave Afghan airspace and go to a NATO or an EU country. Months of work seemed to have been scrapped at that point. We weren't sure what to do. And guys, we'd spent about four and a half million dollars on rescue operations in that part of the world. And uh, at that point, uh, we prayed and we sought the Lord. And God's put together a plan. We were already moving them to another nation where we have two aircraft chartered and we're preparing to take about 850 people out. But one of the things that I happened, I went to, I was overseas going to Ukraine and I got a call from Brent. He said, Brent said, Wes, I need you to know something. He goes, all US agencies, all foreign agencies, all humanitarian agencies have stopped operations into Afghanistan. Nobody's trying to rescue these people anymore. And I found it very hard to believe. So I called a brother of mine that I knew that was in the intelligence world. I said, is this true? Have they all pulled out? He goes, it's absolutely true. There's nobody doing it. Well, guys, we have over 3,500 requests. 
to get these people out. And I take this very seriously that when the Lord gives you a responsibility to do what God tells you. See, one of the things that I always tell people is obedience is the safety net for the believer. The very act of trusting God moves God's hand in a very powerful way to move very powerfully on our behalf. And guys, as I was sharing with you, D, when I went back into Afghanistan in January, and we called the gentleman D, I'm not gonna tell you who he is, the intelligence officer. He actually... uh, sent me a message through Signal, which Signal is a private way of communicating. And he said, brother, when I met you, I did not know organizations like you existed. I said, well, D, I'm not sure there are any like us. It's very unusual what God has called us to. He said, but when I met you, I was a Catholic, but I had walked away from faith many years ago. But I watched how you guys operated the fact that you were not there for fortune, you were not there for fame, you were not advertising yourself, you were absolutely silent. He goes, one of the things that we saw was everybody that was either even a government or a humanitarian were advertising themselves, trying to get known, trying to raise support, which is understandable. He said, except for far-reaching ministries, you were the only one that wasn't doing it. He said, after watching the way you guys behave, I have surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, and I'm now a believer. And guys, I told the guys, I said, if that's all I ever receive in eternity, that's enough for me to know that. Shannon told us that uh, one of her close friends uh, is a New York Times bestselling writer. He wrote the movie 12 Strong. And uh, many of you probably have seen the movie where U.S. forces were going into Afghanistan, a special forces unit. And uh, he called up Shannon, and he said, Shannon, who is far-reaching ministries and what is in it for them? She goes, there's nothing in it for them. He goes, no, come on, tell me. There's got to be something. They're getting something out of this. She goes, they're knowing it for no other reason than they love Christ. Now, guys, you got to realize this guy is a non-believer, okay? He doesn't know the Lord. But he said to her, he said, you know, I've been watching. Everybody's advertising themselves except for FRM. He goes, you know, it's kind of like Jesus turning over the money changer tables. And guys, once again, if that's all we ever receive in eternity, it's enough for me. Edmund Burke said, all that it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Guys, I would say all that it takes for evil to triumph is for God's people to do nothing. You know, I've been in Sudan now for 26 years. We're involved in five wars around the world. We have operations into Burma, operations into Nigeria. There's a village that we're working in in Nigeria uh, the Fulani Muslims have come down and they have killed, four, there's 400 widows in this one village alone. They've killed their husbands, they've raped most of their women. Uh, when you go there, you feel like you've seen people in a war because they're just, the women are shell-shocked from what they've been going through there. And uh, we actually just agreed to take on 100 missionaries. These are all former Fulani that have come to Christ and we're training them and opening up a Bible school to send them back to their own people. And folks, we didn't choose to send them, they chose to go themselves. They have told us that after coming to faith in Christ and realizing what they have in Christ, they said, we were willing to die for Islam, which was a false religion. How much more do you think we're willing to die for Christ, which is a true religion? And so we're seeing great fruit in that part of the world. But we also have the war in South Sudan. We have the war in uh, Afghanistan, as I've said, and also in the Ukraine. We actually had 40 missionaries in the underground in the Ukraine. So of course we had to get involved when that came about. One of the things that God really spoke to me, and there are several things that he spoke to me through his word, guys, because I really prayed for wisdom about doing this. When God called us to go into these areas, I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, are you actually truly calling us? I need a verse from you to confirm that you have spoken to me about this. And God spoke to me in Proverbs chapter 24, in verse 10, it says, if you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those being led away to death, hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? And God expects us men to be tough. Guys, one of the things about being a believer, God does expect the church to be strong, and especially men. When King David is dying, he's talking to his son Solomon. And the last words that he says to his son, guys, are always what's most important. When people are dying, they want to get what they need off their chest or say what they want to say. Often it's someone saying, I never told you I loved you and I need to tell you that. But what King David says to Solomon, he says, Solomon, be strong and therefore prove yourself to be a man. Guys, one of the things that I loved about these guys when I went over there, these guys had a tremendous amount 
of military experience and combat experience. And yet there was not this boastfulness of I was in special forces. Everything they did was about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's one of the things that I really loved about the men over there was their absolute commitment and love to Christ. We had one brother by the name of Jared. Uh, he was a lead sniper for one of the SEAL teams. I think he had over 250 confirmed kills himself. And yet they weren't boasting in themselves, they were boasting in the Lord. Before being a missionary in Southern Sudan, I was a missionary in Russia for almost five years, guys. And I go back to Russia every year, or have been, I don't know if that will happen anymore, during the Christmas holidays. And you know, guys, I've been in Southern Sudan, but the thing I hate worse about the Southern Sudan is not the war, it's not the fighting, it's not the killing, it's the heat. It's much like Florida is in the heat of the summer here. You literally sweat all the time. You never feel like your body is dry, you never feel clean. You take a shower and you feel like you're completely in sweat two minutes later. So every year I would go back to Russia and I would go uh, on the 27th or the 26th of December, I would fly back there. And the reason I go back during that time, uh, the biggest holiday in Russia is not Christmas, it's New Year's. They celebrate it and uh, they close down everything from the 31st of December to the 10th of January. Uh, and Christmas is not on December 25th, it's Eastern Orthodox with this January 7th. So it's a great time to go over there and have fellowship and we have a lot of work. We built seven Calvary chapels over there. Uh, we probably have 20 pastors supported. And uh, guys, the Russian church is very, not behind this invasion. Uh, matter of fact, most of the Russian people are not behind it. Uh, this is something they don't have control over. We have one of our Russian missionaries that has actually got 39 Ukrainian families through Russia to a safe nation. They're doing it at great risk to their own lives. And so I would go back there during the winter time and I enjoyed the snow. and. Uh, I remember I was coming back from a city called Yaroslava. We had bought a car for a pastor while we were over there. And uh, we're coming back one night and it's a blizzard. I mean, just, you know, the snowflakes literally the size of quarters. And it's so heavy that you can only see about 10 to 20 feet, maybe 30 feet at the most ahead of you. And while I was there, the Lord spoke to my heart and he said, what is about to happen if the body of Christ does not intervene? Satan is getting ready to harvest a blizzard of souls in Afghanistan. And that's why God has called us to come into this part of the world and to do ministry. Guys, so often we allow hardship to stop us in ministry. And as you read the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah goes through a time of strength, a time of great discouragement, a time of strength, a time of great discouragement. We even see this with Paul the apostle. Paul talked about his ministry and he said that many times that he was perplexed are confused to the point of death. Now this is the Apostle Paul. Often in ministry, God doesn't show us what's coming. He allows us to walk through the storms for many reasons. One, to make us stronger men. I know that as we were entering into Afghanistan, I had a discussion among the men and we said, what are we gonna do if we run into Taliban raping and killing women and children and killing men? Are we gonna intervene? And rightly so, some of the guys said, we have to look at the bigger picture. People are dying everywhere in Afghanistan. We're trying to save thousands, not a few. And if we get caught, then that will thwart the operation. And guys, this is really important when your moral compass comes into play. And I thought about it for a moment. I said, guys, I, I can't do this. I said, if I see them killing women and children and raping, I said, I'm just gonna start dropping them one after another. And you guys better come along with me because I'm paying for the trip. And so <laughs> fortunately, all the guys got on board at that time. You know, guys, I share with people that when I went to Africa, I did not go there to be a pastor. I went there to be a Bible teacher uh, and an evangelist. I'm actually ordained as a Calvary Chapel pastor. I thought about being a pastor once, but I realized that you had to like people. And so I chose to be a foreign missionary, you know. But I remember that when God called me to Africa, what began to happen was rebels began coming down and attacking villages around us. One village, they took 58 children and they crushed their heads against trees. They would come in and rape every woman from the age of nine years old and above to about as old as a woman could be. When they were done with them, the most beautiful women, they would take into sexual slavery. But the women that they did not want, they would most often just shoot them and kill them. But if they didn't shoot them and kill them, they'd cut their noses off, their ears off, their lips off, their fingers off, their breast off. And the Lord told me, you have got to do something about this. So we began to build sanctuaries for the women and children to come in. When the sun would begin to set, at first you would see a trickle. 
But by the time the sun went down, they estimated 44,000 women and children at night were coming in looking for sanctuary. When you are a soldier, you truly do read scripture in a different light. I think about King David when he wanted to build the temple of the Lord and God says to David, he said, David, it's good that it's in your heart, but you're a man of war, you're a man of blood, you cannot build my temple. And guys, about six, seven years ago, we had a rebel unit probing our village, somewhere around 1,000 to 1,200 guerrillas. And they were coming for the women and children in our village. And I had to deploy the men in the field. We'd go out every night as the sun was setting and we would not come back in until the sun rose. And our standing order was intercept them and kill them all. Don't you let a single one of them get away. Now guys, if they surrender, will I take them prisoner? Of course I will. But see, if they get away, they're gonna come back for the women and children. And a lot of people come up to you and say, well, Wes, what about that scripture that says, turn the other cheek? Well, turn the other cheek means take an offense for the gospel. And never meant to let them rape your wife, your daughter, to sell them into sexual slavery, to murder women and children, to burn them alive. I don't know why the church doesn't understand that. As men, we have a God-given right to protect women and children. And I think about in my own life, guys, if I were to try to build the temple, I suspect God would send a prophet to me and say, it's good that it's in your heart to do this. But you're a man of war, you're a man of blood. You could not build my temple. The great thing is, guys, is I can build his church. And I'd much rather build the church of God than build a building. You know, guys, one of the things I see about Jeremiah too, God did not allow Jeremiah to marry. And I think about that in my own personal life because my wife, Vicki, has been such a great comfort to me in ministry. She really, Vicki teaches as many as 13 Bible studies a week and they're all different Bible studies. I actually said to her, I go, honey, why don't you just teach the same Bible study to 13 different groups? She goes, well, the Lord hasn't led me to do that. So she studies literally in the Word uh, eight hours a day, six and seven days a week. She just loves the Word. But guys, when I come back from a hard fight or a hard battle, men have died. I have there is someone to talk to, to comfort, and to be with me. It's a great joy to me. And a lot of times she'll say, honey, tell me what's going on inside. And I'll say, Vicki, I... I don't have words. I, I, I don't know how to even express this. And she'll stop and she'll just pray for me. She knows I can't explain it at this point. It was too dramatic what we went through. Yet Jeremiah never had this, guys. I know at one point, Vicki went up to see the commanding general of the South Sudan Army. And guys, I led him to Christ 23 years ago. He's an extremely godly man. He will most likely be the future president. Please pray for him. Because if he becomes the president, he will most likely declare the South Sudan to be a Christian nation. There is no nation on earth that does this and he will do it if he becomes the president. But she went up to see him and she said, General, if they kill me, and guys, whenever I send Vicky out, I send a host of armed guards. It's a dangerous part of the world. We have to be armed all the time. She goes, if something happens to me, she goes, you better stop Wes because he'll kill half the people in South Sudan. And, I actually couldn't believe that she said that. I go, honey, I said, first of all, I am not gonna kill half the people in Sudan. I said, I'll only kill those that are responsible, you know, but that's just the way she is, guys. She's a wonderful wife and she helps me in tremendous ways. Sometimes hardship is what makes you into the man that God wants you to be. Guys, we have a chaplain by the name of Moses. And I wanna share with you, he has a wife by the name of Martha. She lived in a city called Malachon. The enemy hit Malachon with well over 2,000 soldiers. There was a garrison of about 180 soldiers there. They overran the city, they killed the entire garrison, then they killed all the men, they killed most of the children, and then began the rape of the women of Malachon. Moses told me that when they found out that they had attacked his city, he said, we were a much smaller force, but we attacked with great ferocity. He said, we were fighting for our wives and our children. He said, as they were fighting, Finally, the enemy army decided that the battle was not worth it, so they decided to evacuate Malachon. They had killed all but 15 women, so they took 15 women. They were all to be sex slaves. His wife was among them. She had two children, and she was pregnant with his child. Of the 15 they took, they felt that 10 of them were slowing them down, so they shot them and killed them. Moses actually thought that his wife had been killed, and they told her that they had killed her husband so that she would not try to flee. She was in captivity for three years. We estimate over the three years that she was in captivity, she was raped between three and 5,000 times during that time. Moses said that the next three years were terrible. He says, we were fighting for our nation. Uh, 
But Moses had not lost his faith. He said, I don't understand what God's doing, but I know that God sees all things. And he began to minister to the men. But what was unique about it, all the men know Moses' wife was with theirs. They all assumed that she had been killed too. Yet Moses had not lost his faith. So because of that, soldiers were giving their life to Christ everywhere. Many men were becoming born again. After three years, a man came and said, Moses, I know where your wife is, but she's deep behind enemy lines. He goes, will you take me to her? He goes, yes. So guys, they traveled deep behind enemy lines. They were, I think it took them somewhere 9, 10, 11 days before they found the enemy garrison. Moses said he watched, I believe it was 11 days before he sparred at her because there were thousands of people there. So for 11 days he watched and finally he saw his wife. As he was watching her, he would see a man take her into a hut, man take her out, man take her in, man take her out, man take her in, man take her out. He said, I wanted to go and get her immediately, but I knew if I was caught, I'd be killed and her torment would go on forever. So he watched for four days. He had to figure out a way to get her. After four days, he realized that the safest time where there was the least amount of security was at three in the morning. The problem was they would not have time to escape. Once they get up, he's got to run with her. And guys, the next morning, young bush soldiers are coming after you. And these guys know how to track people. So he went in at one o'clock in the morning. He entered into the hut. There was nobody there with her. And he went up and he put his hand over her mouth because he's afraid that she was going to wake up and scream. And he opened her eyes and what he said translated to her was, be quiet, my love. I have come for you. He said she just began to weep. Tears just began to come down her eyes. And she got up and she hugged him and she embraced him. And he said, this is not the time to embrace. This is the time to run. Amazingly, they had not killed her two children and she'd given birth to his other child. You know, folks, in the entire three years that she's in captivity, she did not bear a child. Her body was going through too much trauma to give birth to a child. They ran for 20 hours the first night. They stopped for two hours and then they ran for another 20 hours. This went on for about four or five days. Finally, they made it back to friendly lines. When Moses brought her to the base, guys, she was extremely traumatized. And I don't think she'll ever be fully normal. She had an ear that had been bleeding for somewhere between a year and a year and a half. Uh, a soldier wanted to sleep with her. She said, I'm sick. Can you wait till tomorrow? Well, he beat her so severely that her ear would not stop bleeding. I sent her to a doctor and they were able to fix it. Amazingly, they fixed her ear. And I built a house right next to our compound because Moses had to go back to the war. And I sent out a, young, a message to all the men in our village. I said, if a young man touches this woman, the police will not protect you. The army will not protect you. We will absolutely kill you. So if you touch her, know that you will die. And of course, they know that we're serious, so they have left her alone. But guys, while I was over there, I was talking to Martha. I said, Martha, how are you doing? She said, Wes, what I went through was extremely terrible. She said, but I am the only woman that survived Malachan, and I survived with my three children. I am grateful to the Lord. She gave birth after that to a little girl. She named her after my wife, Vicki, very special to us. And guys, since that time, Moses has been made a governor in the Southern Sudan because of his faithfulness. When I talked to Moses about this, it wasn't like he was trying to boast. I, it felt like he was just trying to give, share what had happened. There was no boasting in it. I don't think he even realized what he had done. The highest medal that we give in the American military for heroism is called the Congressional Medal of Honor. The highest medal that we give in the South Sudan to the Chaplain's Corps is called the Knight's Cross for Christ's Knight. We have ever only awarded one of them and it was posthumously. The chaplain was killed. Moses, three years ago, was the first living chaplain to receive the Knight's Cross. And he has had a tremendous witness for the gospel there. I believe that the God wants his church to get involved. And guys, I flew to Amsterdam on April 4th. I had a meeting with our Dutch office. They're helping us with operations into both the Ukraine and Afghanistan. On the 6th of April, I had a dream. And I want to reiterate, this was a dream. But it was the most graphic dream I've ever had in my life. In all the years that I've been a believer, and I've walked with Christ for 46 years, I have never had a dream that was this graphic. And 
I've only had four dreams that I felt were from Christ, and this was one of them. In the dream, I was looking for a Calvary pastor that was ministering in the Ukraine. He had gone missing. So I'd gone to the last city that he was at. I was trying to find out what had happened to him. And the people told me that there was a sniper that was killing a lot of civilians. Well, I was a professional shooter in the Marine Corps. And I said, uh, listen, I know how to shoot. I'll, I'll, I'll deal with this guy. And in the dream, I took him out. Well, as the dream progressed, I became known for when there was a situation where snipers were killing people, that they would call me and I would come in and I would deal with the sniper. One day they called me and they said, there's a sniper in a high-rise building. He's killing a lot of people. And they go, we can't get to him every time someone approaches the building, he kills them. I said, don't worry about it, guys, I'll deal with it. Well, in the dream, I went with another sniper and we had been working for, together for a while. In the dream, I knew who he was. As I woke up, I can't remember anymore, but I remember in the dream, I knew who he was. And as it was a very tall building, maybe 30 stories high, and I said, listen, we'll clear it floor by floor. I'll take the lead, you follow up, because if we miss him, I don't want him coming back up behind us and shooting us. And we got very high up in the building. It seemed like it was like 18 or 20 floors that we went up. And I came around a corner and I saw a carpet and plastic laying on the floor and it was moving. Well, that's an old sniper trick to hide under things and shoot from a concealed possession. So I immediately raised my weapon to fire, but something in my spirit told me don't shoot. So I stopped and I kept the weapon trained, but I went over there and I pulled it back and under it were four little boys between the age of three and five. And they were so afraid. And I looked at the boys, I said, where are your parents? They go, we don't know. And I said, do you little boys wanna come home and live with me? And all four of them just got up and they came over and they put their arms around my waist and started to hug me. And I woke up at that moment, guys, and tears were running out of my eyes. I have never in my life as an adult woke up with tears in my eyes. Matter of fact, guys, I haven't cried, I think, in 40 years. Well, Vicki had got up, it was 4.30, and I think she got up about an hour earlier to study the Word, and she saw me, and she goes, Cameron, she goes, honey, what is going on? I go, I said, I had the most graphic dream I have ever had in my life. And I reiterated the dream to her, and I said, you know, Vicki, I feel like this has spiritual meaning, but I don't know what it means. I mean, are the boys out there, and I'm supposed to go find them? I don't know what it is. Well, we prayed, and we felt like we needed an interpretation. And guys, we called two pastors, and one is a pastor, one's not a pastor, but both very godly men, and, at, and both gifted in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I reiterated the dream to them. And I said, can you guys give me an interpretation? Because we know that that happens. When Nebuchadnezzar had his dream, he didn't know what it meant. God sent Daniel to interpret. And they both came back with interpretations and it lined up perfectly. And what the Lord was showing me is that in Ukraine, there are many orphans now. They've lost their mothers, their fathers. They're all alone out there. And they're afraid, they're children. And God wants his church to intervene and to go after them. Guys, we have been feeding people in Ukraine. We just took on uh, 2,500 families that we have agreed to feed for the next three months. One of the cities we went into, we met a woman. The day that we got there, she had decided to commit suicide. She told us that when she had a daughter that had been killed in a car accident five, six, seven years ago, I don't remember, and that when the Russia invaded, her daughter was in her apartment, and I don't know if it was hit by an artillery shell or a rocket, but it vaporized her daughter. They couldn't find any traces of her. So she had decided to kill herself that morning, and we shared Christ with her. And she prayed and gave her life to the Lord. She goes, I'm not gonna kill myself. I believe that the Lord has told me I will see my children again. A lot of people in Russia are in great despair. See, if something like a natural disaster happened to us, we have the ability to rebuild. The wages that we make, it may not be to the level that we used to live, but we have the ability to rebuild. A lot of these people do not. Peasant farmers or people in their condition make 100 to two, $300 a month. And yet an apartment could still cost $70,000. How do you have time in a life? And people are killing themselves, they're committing suicide. During the pandemic, we were fleeting people in 17 countries. We would literally show up at doors of people's houses in the Ukraine and they would say, we had not eaten for a week. We were gonna kill ourselves tomorrow. 
and yet we were able to save them through just showing them God's Christian love. As believers, I believe that God wants his church to respond. And one of the things that happened to me in Afghanistan, there was a little girl that I met, and guys, we didn't rescue her. Uh, YWAM had spoke to me one day, and they said, we want you to meet a family. So we went to meet this family. It was a, a mother and her mother. And the, she, the younger mother had two little girls and a pretty young little boy. Well, both of their husbands had been killed by the Taliban. The younger mother, the Taliban guy that killed her husband was his own brother. He was a very evil man. He was in prison. Taliban said, this is what we're looking for. They got him out. He became a high-ranking Taliban officer. When he killed his own brother, I've seen guys a thousand dead bodies in my life. I've never seen someone so brutalized in all the years that I've been in war. I've never seen someone so butchered. They fled the country, but he raped his brother's wife and he raped his brother's four-year-old daughter. When we got there, we were taken to an Afghan restaurant. YWAM recommended it. It was a beautiful meal and they're eating, but there's no joy. You know, guys, when you haven't had a good meal for a long time, you eat, there's great joy, but it wasn't there. They were eating because of hunger. And the mother begins to tell me, she says, my brother-in-law who killed my husband and raped me has communicated through my family that if I do not return, he will kill all 14 members of my family. When she said that, the older daughter just began to sob, just started crying because she was so terrified. I said, listen, Jesus said, come to me all your burden and heavy laden and I will give you rest. I said, now that being said, I'll send an operational team to get them. But when we come, you have to have them know that the moment we show up, they leave. If they don't leave, we're not coming back for them. And we've already done that operation, guys. It's done and over with. When we got done with the meal, they looked like they had not changed their clothes in weeks, if not months, probably left with just what they had on their back. The older little girl got up and she came over and she put her arms around my waist and she just started to cry uncontrollably. And... I leaned down and I kissed her on top of the head. I go, honey, do not worry. I will not let anybody hurt you. I will protect you and your mom and your brothers. And at that point, she wouldn't let go of my hand. We took them to a place to buy new clothing because in the country they're in, it's very cold there. And you know what children need? Winter clothes, play clothes, school clothes, underwear, all the things that they need, tennis shoes, winter boots. It was kind of cute in a way because... She tried to try on a shirt and she'd have one arm in here and the other one holding onto my hand. And I said, honey, you can let go of my hand. I'll take it back when you get done. And finally we got her all the clothes. Afterwards, uh, we took her for ice cream and that was the first time I saw a smile on her face. When I was back there in January, she told everybody for three weeks, my grandfather is coming. And guys, when I got there, she just came up and hugged me. And the Lord spoke to me during that time and he said, this little girl, is to be your daughter the rest of your life. Now, she'll never live with you, but I am giving you the responsibility to take care of her. And I will, guys, I'll take care of her. I think for many of the people in the Ukraine, maybe God has the same calling on many of your lives. Maybe some of you will be called to go out and find the one and take them into your family. Or he will call you to support them and to take care of them. You know, guys, I want to share something with you, and please understand the reason I'm sharing it. I don't mean it to be a boast. I'm not trying to brag, but I'm trying to make a strong biblical point. I'm actually a wealthy man. I don't need to work anymore. God gave me a real clear understanding of the stock market. Two years ago, I made $10 million on the stock market. Eight million of it went to the ministry. I could buy a house on the ocean, buy a luxury car and have a very leisurely life. But I would be miserable. See, in the book of John, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you to go. I know the calling of my life. I want to live in a middle income neighborhood and drive simple cars. My own car is a 2006 Nissan. <laughs> my wife's is nine years old. We bought it three years used. The company provides a car for me because uh, that's all I use it for as ministry. But I could go out and buy any luxury car I want. I could buy vacation homes. But that's not how I want to spend my money. I see so many people that can't afford a home. 
And I have a dream in Africa to build a thousand homes for people over there. And we're doing that right now. We're building a lot of homes. Folks, I want to reiterate to you, and I want you to catch this. See, Jeremiah would never live to see the fruit, but out of his life would come tremendous fruit. Out of his life would come Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Out of his life would come Daniel, and out of his life would come Ezekiel. And all of these men saw what happened when a nation rejected their God. They were taken into captivity for 70 years. And when King Nebuchadnezzar builds a golden altar and says, bow down, they say, we will not bow down to your God, whether our God delivers us or not. And an entire generation knows who the living God is. 70 years later, Daniel is also told to follow a false God. He refuses. Another generation follows Christ and knows who he is. But then Ezekiel writes twice in Ezekiel, we're to go to the sinners, we're to tell them about their sin. If we do not go to them, God would require their blood on our head. And guys, they had all seen what happened when a nation failed, and they all stood their ground. Jeremiah, Jeremiah never lived to see it, but nonetheless, tremendous fruit. When I was on top of that mountain, there was a very real realization that we could be killed up there. We all knew this. But I remember being on top of that mountain, guys, and we went 12 miles in about 14 hours and from 2,000 to 11,500 feet, quite a climb. But I remember thinking, Lord, if this is my time, I'm okay with this. And that may seem strange to you, but see, when Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher of your faith, you can have great peace, guys. I am very aware that we follow the God of angel armies. And I believe two men with God can send an army running. I think about God speaking to me through the blizzard and saying that if we do not intervene, there will be a blizzard of souls in Afghanistan. And there has been, guys. I have shared this with you before, but, and I want you guys to understand this, being a soldier does not make someone more a spiritual person. Unless you're called to be a soldier, you should not be one. We're all called to different ministries. I remember I have done, I taught a Sunday school class once in my life. I got the four-year-olds. <laughs> I would rather be back in Sudan being shot at than go through that again. <laughs> See, I'm not called to that, but many of you are. The greatest desire of my life, and I have long suspected guys, and I could be wrong, but I suspect I will not live out my natural life. I have a feeling at one of these points I'm gonna be killed in one of these wars. But when that day comes and I stand before a holy God and I look into his eyes for the first time, I wanna hear him say, well done, son, well done. I wanna encourage you as a church, there's a statistic out there and it's a fact. 82% of people who are invited to church will come, 82%. Every Christian should go out this week and get a set of cards made with their name, their phone number, the church name, address, and service times, and phone number. And if you're at a gas station, say, hey, I would just like to invite you to church. You don't even have to beat them up with the gospel. Let Zach beat them up with the gospel. <laughs> but just hand it out to your neighbor. Guys, why don't you just come to church? If you see me come up, I'd like to get you a cup of coffee. That's how you will store treasures in heaven. And guys, if you do it, the church will explode. As you leave this morning, we want to give you an opportunity. And guys, the first thing I'm going to say, if you decide to do this, do not take it out of your church tithing. We don't want you to take it out of your church tithing. We have a program we started in Russia. It was called Potatoes for Grandmothers. I would go to Christian's houses and open their refrigerator, and there'd be nothing or a half a fish. And a lot of the Russian believers would tell me we can only afford to drink milk twice a year. Meat does not exist in our diet. We live off of potatoes. And so we designed it not to be a big program, but just to care for elderly believers. Now there are thousands in the Ukraine, so we're turning it into potatoes for grandmothers for the Ukraine. And we're either gonna take an elderly grandmother, an elderly man, someone who's disabled, or a widow of a soldier and we're gonna start providing for them. If you would like to sponsor one of these, I will tell you that every penny will go to the project. 
We won't use a dime of it for our personal administration. We don't need to. Guys, we're, we're a large organization. We're financially bigger than most of the large Calvary chapels. We don't do this because we're here to try to get money out of people. It's not that we might receive, but that you might store your treasures in heaven. If you would like to sponsor one of these elderly people, it's $75 a month, and we will send you their dossier somewhere between four and six months. We're gathering them right now. Then we have our pastors in the underground. We have 400 pastors in the underground. We have 300 to go. We're going to sponsor 700. If you'd like to sponsor one of them, it's also $75 a month. And then, guys, we have built two castles in Africa. One is a children's school. We have 400 children there, but we're going to put 700 kids there. It's a free school. You can see the picture of the school on the back of the card. If you'd like to sponsor one of these, it's also 75. Now, you'll get updates on the children and the potatoes for grandmother. The ghost operations, we can tell you nothing about them. If they are found, they will be murdered. The only thing that will ever inform you is if they're killed. You'll find out about them on the other side of eternity. If you would like to do it, you have to fill out the form at the back. Do not pick them up and walk away with them. I will not know if they're sponsored. We don't put stuff on our website, guys. Unfortunately, we found out that Al-Qaeda was following our website and two of our missionaries were on what's called a kill site. They put up photos of them and it says kill on site. So we had to remove all this from our website. You have to give us your name, address, phone number, sign it at the bottom. Boydy checks work best because we don't pay fees, but you can use a debit or credit card. People ask me this every Sunday, guys, and I'm not asking you to do this, but people every Sunday say, well, what if I want to do all three? Well, we realize that we're not asking you to do that, but there are people that God has really financially blessed and you have the ability to do more than one. And you may want to do three. Well, if you can do it without taking out of your church sponsor or your tithing, then it's 225. The greatest pleasure of my life, guys, is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, guys, it's interesting because I've shared this with people, but I've had many people try to get me to write a book. And rightfully so. And I've always just said no. Uh, one pastor said, Wes, nobody has your stories. It will be the greatest mission book ever. I said, you know, guys, every pastor today wants to write his book. And I realize there's value in that. But I think this is the book that the world needs. It's not my testimony. And I understand the value. And if God tells me to do it, folks, I will. I had a Hollywood producer spent 10 hours, tried to get me to do a movie, wanted to make me out to be a Christian Rambo, and I told him no. I said, you, I said, you don't get it. I said, I'm not the hero, it's Jesus Christ. He said, Wes, I've given you what everybody dreams of. I said, everybody who's carnal. The Bible says that no flesh shall glory in the presence of God. Because the greatest desire of my life is the day that I will see the Lord. And I don't know about you guys, but I feel that we are racing towards eternity. I feel like the coming of the Messiah is at hand. And I know for a lot of you, you're fearful, but what does the Bible say? It says, when you see all these things happening, look up to heaven and know that your redemption draweth nigh. You know what, guys? The Lord told me to take care of that little Afghan girl the rest of my life. For some of you, maybe it's a Ukrainian grandmother or a child. Maybe you'll get into adopting. But I want to encourage you, pray and say, Lord, what do you want me to do?